This is 15-Minute History, a podcast for educators, students, and history buffs featuring the minds and talents of the University of Texas at Austin. 15-Minute History is a partnership of Not Even Past and Hemispheres in the College of Liberal Arts at UT Austin. Hi, I'm Joan Newberger, and I am editor of Not Even Past and your host today for 15-Minute History. Our guest today is Miriam Bodian. Hi, Miriam. Hi, Joan. Miriam uh, is going to be speaking about the Spanish Inquisition. Miriam, why don't we begin with the definition? Can you tell us um, what the institution of the Spanish Inquisition was, when it was in operation, and in general, what its purpose was? Well, the Inquisition was established in Spain in, in 1480 by King Ferdinand and Queen Isabella, who are better known for having supported Christopher Columbus's voyages to America. So they came to power with a problem on their hands. Almost a century earlier, uh, there had been mass riots throughout Spain in in the summer of 1391, and many uh, thousands of Jews were forcibly baptized. After they were baptized, they were expected to live as Christians. But many of them continued to practice Judaism as well as they could in secret. So the Inquisition was designed to expose cases of what they called Judaizing, which was reversion to Judaism, among these forced converts and their descendants um, to, as as they felt about it, to purify Spain of this heresy. And um, how important was the Inquisition in early modern Spain? Was this something that everybody had contact with or knew about? Yes, Uh, There is nothing that has ever appeared on stage or screen to adequately convey the enormous power of this institution. Until it was abolished in 1834, it enjoyed the full support of the Spanish crown. It had 23 tribunals, including three in the Americas. An inquisitor general stood at the head of its vast bureaucracy over inquisitors, prosecutors, comisarios, notaries, and other functionaries. And it could call on a veritable army of familiares, or lay officials, who supplied information and aided the Inquisition in various ways. And I should add that its power was greatly enhanced by its secrecy. This made uh, fair trials, from our point of view, almost impossible. Once prisoners were admitted to the secret cells, as they were called, they had no contact with the outside world, although smuggling of information was not unknown. And until formal charges were brought, they weren't told why they were being held. Even afterward, the identity of the persons who had denounced them was withheld, and the accusations against them were worded to protect their identity. At least two denunciations were required to proceed to trial, but hearsay evidence was entirely acceptable. So uh, the the secrecy was one of the, the keys to both its power and the terror that it invoked. Um. And how did the Inquisition decide who to arrest? Did they just sort of randomly pick people up that they thought might be heretics, or were they careful about um, identifying enemies or heretics? Well, this is an area with a lot of misunderstanding. The Inquisition did not round up and immediately punish people. Um, There were very exacting regulations that governed its activities. Uh, They were very, very detailed. There is a huge mass of records of individual cases, which have only begun to be explored, and they generally attest to the scrupulousness of inquisitors, notaries, and other officials in following these regulations. And 
no one could be arrested without some evidence of guilt in hand. So this, uh, whatever evidence had been supplied, usually by denunciations, was examined and a vote was actually taken before the Inquisition proceeded to arrest. After that, the suspect was imprisoned uh, for the duration of the trial, but before charges were actually formally brought against him or her, and this could take months, the suspect appeared um, before the tribunal and was questioned and admonished or warned. The suspect could confess at any point. That would shorten the trial. It would lighten punishment. If he or she didn't confess, at least fully, at the first audience, two more attempts would be made, and then a formal accusation was made. So this was the procedure. After the formal accusation, the Inquisition gave the suspect an advocate. This was like a lawyer, but this lawyer was a paid functionary of the Inquisition, and it was really his job to try to get the prisoner to confess. Uh, Occasionally, an advocate did act to defend a prisoner and try to ensure a fairer outcome, Uh, but for the most part, they were there to secure a confession. Suspects could also name people who might testify on their behalf, a priest, a parish priest, or somebody uh, with some social status they knew. They could also name people they felt might have denounced them falsely, for example, a neighbor with whom they were quarreling, or very often an angry servant. Sometimes they named an entire Rolodex of acquaintances, including family members, to exclude almost everybody from consideration as a, uh, a sincere, uh, honest denouncer. So the Inquisition had very specific um, rules and structures for accusing people. Um, my assumption was that they targeted Jews in particular as heretics. Is that true? Well, actually, the Inquisition didn't prosecute Jews at all at least not unbaptized Jews. Uh, it, it prosecuted religious crimes only if they were committed by what they termed heretics. So by, by definition, a heretic had to be a baptized person. It was somebody who had deviated from uh, orthodoxy after having been baptized into the church. So the Jews that the Inquisition targeted were the conversos. They're often referred to in Inquisition documents as judios or judeus in in Portuguese, which is the word for Jew. So they were descendants of Jews who had been forcibly baptized in in Spain in and after 1391 and uh, whom I mentioned before. Um, And did they ever target people who were not in some way related to or descended from Jews? Did they um, arrest people for witchcraft or sorcery? They actually arrested people for all kinds of things. Once the Inquisition was in place, it uh, tended to extend its authority rather than to shrink it, as most institutions do. So they prosecuted crypto-Muslims, bigamists, homosexuals. They prosecuted uh, old Christians, for various crimes against the faith. The one thing they didn't really prosecute against was witchcraft. And this is interesting because uh, witches were tried in so many European lands, as well as in New England. Um, the inquisitors tended to be very rationalistic and uh, on, on, for the most part didn't believe that 
there was such a thing as witchcraft. So there was really only one outstanding episode of of witch hunting in the 350-some years of the Inquisition's existence. Mm -hmm. This took place in the north of Spain, in the Kingdom of Navarre, from 1609 to 1611. Uh, In fact, uh, most scholars agree that Spain was notably free of witch trials in comparison with the rest of Europe. And did the Inquisition use uh, torture on prisoners? Well, yes, it did, but not as much as most people think. It didn't apply torture indiscriminately, and uh, most prisoners were not tortured at all. Torture was a, again, it was highly regulated. It took a lot of manpower. It it, it was time-consuming, and it was applied really only for two reasons. A, to gain a confession from a prisoner who was reluctant to confess, or B, to gain information about other heretics, more names to prosecute. So if the tribunal was satisfied that a prisoner, after being interrogated, had confessed and supplied the information that was wanted, and this happened frequently, it wouldn't call for torture. Uh, The elderly and the sick wouldn't be tortured. And whenever torture was administered, a physician was expected to be present in order to suspend the proceedings if he thought the prisoner's life was in danger. Um, so it was it was not automatic, it was not indiscriminate, and it was actually much uh, more carefully regulated than torture in civil courts at this time. Um, the punishments that I associate with the Spanish Inquisition are seem torturous, so... When I think of the Spanish Inquisition, I think of burning at the stake. Is that how most people were punished if they were found guilty? Another misconception. Uh, Burning at the stake was certainly one of the possible punishments, but not by a long shot was every victim of the Inquisition burned at the stake. Um, There were many other punishments. Some of them were severe, for example, public lashes, which could be uh, humiliating as well as being very painful. Uh, further imprisonment. One of the worst was service in the galleys, that is, working, rowing in the uh, galleys of ships. And some of them were lighter. Uh, it could be a mere reprimand by an inquisitor or a scolding or taking a pledge to be loyal to the church, albeit under pain of severe penalties. Uh, it could be exile from a town or from a region for a specified period. So uh, most prisoners who were tried were actually not burned at the stake. Um, I can't give you exact figures on it, but what we do have, I think, is of interest in a study. There's only one of its kind, a study of 44,000-plus cases, and that's less than half the total number of cases after 1540. Out of those 44,674 cases... 826 uh, victims were burned at the stake. So that's a lot of people, but it's less than 2% of those arrested and tried and a lot less than most people think. Um, were, were people ever found not guilty and released? Actually, the Inquisition uh, did not adhere to the principle that you're innocent until uh, found guilty. The, the Inquisition actually would have regarded it as beneath its dignity to acquit a prisoner. Uh, when there was clearly not enough evidence to sentence, or when the evidence pointed to the prisoner's innocence, um, the Inquisition might suspend the case, and the prisoner would have to live with the stigma of having been tried. But would be released? Yes, but he would have spent time in prison, and, and there would have been stigma. Or 
the Inquisition might have sentenced the prisoner uh, to a very light sentence mm-hmm. for so, suspicion. Mm-hmm. So finally, how was uh, how was all of this activity paid for? The finances were very complex. Uh, the Inquisition was supported by the Crown, but the tribunals were actually expected to be sort of independently financed. Uh, and uh, one of the most important sources of revenue was property confiscated from prisoners. This is one of the most shocking aspects of these trials. At the moment of arrest, a prisoner's property would come under the administration of the Inquisition, all of it, in great detail. Uh, Pots and pans, goats, whatever. (laughs) And this was used to pay for the prisoner's upkeep, uh, their food, uh, if they needed bedding. If prisoners had to be taken a long distance under guard to the town where they would be tried, the expenses of travel would be paid uh, for out of their property. And even in cases when prisoners were torture, the fee paid to the public executioner, and this was the person who administered the torture, would be paid out of their own property. And if prisoners were found guilty of heresy, their property would be entirely confiscated. Uh, And this was one of the most important sources of income for the Inquisition, confiscated property. Would you say in the end that the Spanish Inquisition was successful at what it set out to do? Well, its goals changed, but let me put it this way. It was never entirely successful in suppressing nonconformist and heretical thinking of all sorts. But it was quite successful in suppressing the public expression of dissent. And so Spain really bypassed a whole era in the development of European thinking. Uh, this was, it wasn't hermetically sealed Spain, but through censorship, it prevented the, the Inquisition, prevented the entry into Spain of publications that challenged uh, the reigning orthodoxy as well. And when did it come to an end? It came to an end slowly, you know. It was sort of moribund by the Enlightenment uh, when some Spaniards were already questioning the kind of justice, in quotes, that the Inquisition was dispensing. But it remained a fairly popular institution, and uh, it was abolished only with Napoleon's invasion of Spain in 1808 when Napoleon set up a liberal regime Uh, But when the French were driven out five years later, the Inquisition was reestablished, and so it was only finally abolished in 1834, shockingly late. Well, um, this has been very informative. Thank you very much, Miriam. Thank you, John. If you have a suggestion for a topic you'd like to have us talk about on an upcoming episode of 15-Minute History, go to our website, blogs.utexas.edu backslash 15-minute history, that's 1-5-minute history, and click on the Contact Us link in the right sidebar. The opinions and views expressed in today's episode are not representative of the University of Texas at Austin or any of its constituent bodies and are solely those of the people who spoke them.